Hey, everybody. Welcome to Rock Bottom Syndicate. I'm your host, Joyce Strong. Rock Bottom is about people who have a story to tell. It's about their rock bottom moments in their lives and um, the inspiration that I get from hearing their stories and hearing what they did in the face of trying and difficult situations. In this episode, I have Carrie Hill. She is a survivor of brain aneurysm. And in fact, I'm going to have her back on to tell more of her story. This is somewhat of an intro for us because she goes into the details of how it all happened and really needed to go into the details in order for us to fully understand the level of frustration and the emotional anguish and the burden that it all placed on on Carrie, but also on everybody in her life, her family and her employer and coworkers and friends and uh, the, the bigger picture. And she is a natural speaker. She is just a phenomenal speaker. And I, I, I hope that once you hear this show, you will think about hiring Carrie as a, a speaker for your organization, because I think she is a just a born speaker and communicator. It's quite amazing story um, and all the levels of the frustration dealing with our healthcare system. And, uh, and Carrie is a problem solver. She's not a complainer. These things happened and she's looking for solutions. And so her telling her story on Rock Bottom Syndicate is really about how do we fix this system and also to be inspired in spite of her tragedy of being so young and dealing with brain aneurysm one and then another and then another. Uh, she is just a, 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 an amazing person and very much alive and very much contributing and having purpose in her life. So do uh, reach out to Carrie. All that information is in the show notes. And I really hope you enjoy this episode of Rock Bottom Syndicate and make sure you tune in to the follow-up episode that I'll be doing with Carrie as well. Thanks a lot. Hi, Carrie. Thank you so much for coming on Rock Bottom Syndicate. Hi, Joyce. Thank you so much for having me today. Um, just for our listeners, this is Carrie Hill, and um, she has had a series of rock bottoms in her life and has um, found ways beyond what I can imagine uh, to turn things around for herself. And I've been really looking forward to hearing your story. I heard I, we talked before, so I, we talked on the phone, and I heard a good piece of your story. Um, but this is our first time face-to-face -face being able to really um, capture it. So thank you for being willing to come on and tell us what happened to you in your life and what you're doing with it now. Okay. So thank you again for having me. This is my first podcast ever. So excuse the nerves, please. <laughs> uh, so I'll just go right into it. Um, in 1998, no, excuse me, 99, I was pregnant with my son, my one and only child, and I had four trans ischemic attacks during that time. Um, they just said they were migraines. There wasn't much they could do about them because I was pregnant and, you know, to be careful not to have any more babies because they figured the pregnancy was causing these small mini clots to throw into mini strokes. So I didn't have any more children. After I gave birth to my son, who was healthy and perfect, um, I had a few more trans ischemic attacks over the 20 year span that, that we're working with at this point. The most recent one I had was in July of this past year. And then the one prior to that was December of 2000, 
18. Um, and prior to that, they had been silent for about six to seven years. So we're still trying to figure out what causes those. But when the TIAs went a little silent, life went back to normal, being a young mom and raising a son and working full time and going to college um, part time and, you know, making our way into, into life and into future. And uh, I got married and we bought a house and we had the white picket fence and the great job and the friends and the PTA and the sporting events. And, you know, life was just going and it was great. And everybody was, was thriving with what they were doing. And um, so that was 2008. In 2009, January of 2009, I had another, what I assumed was a TIA. I was at work and the ambulance came and picked me up and took me to a local hospital and they gave me a shot and scanned my brain and sent me home. Same thing happened again in March. They usually don't come that quick together. So it was a little concerning. So I started to go to my PCP and he would just inject me with migraine medicine and just say, oh, it's a migraine, you know, no worries. And I'm 20, 28 years old at this point. Um, so, okay, the migraines are changing because I'm getting older. That was the reasoning behind it. No big deal. We're just going to keep giving you these shots mm -hmm. um, when you're in pain. Okay. It, by the way, by the way, Carrie, what were your symptoms when you had these TIAs or the the mini strokes? What kind of symptoms did you experience? Good question, because I assume everybody knows what a TIA is, and, and they don't, so my apologies. A TIA is the equivalent of a mini stroke. So the symptoms can be different, but mine are confusion at first that I don't recognize. And then I will have numbness or weakness on one side of the body. And it typically starts at my feet and then goes up into my leg and then into my torso, my arm. The last thing to go numb is my face with the side of my tongue. And then I may have some visual problems where I can't see half of your face. Mm -hmm. um, and it just, it's like a cycle. It goes through those, those phases. And then um, sometimes I can't speak correctly when they happen. I'll slur or I'll speak backwards. Um, and I'll hear that I'm speaking backwards about a minute later, and then I'll try to fix it and I'll speak backwards again. Oh. So I guess it could be comical for some people. It's not really funny to me when it's happening, but how long does it last when they have well, a, T a TIA can last anywhere from 30 seconds to, I believe 45 minutes. If, if I recall the statistics correctly. Mm -hmm. Um, mine, the longest mine had lasted is about 20 minutes, but when they first started, they only lasted 30 seconds to two minutes. So mm -hmm. they're getting progressively longer. Um, and the unfortunate part of the TIA is if you have TIAs, you are 30% more likely to have a massive stroke. Um, and there's no rhyme or reason for it. They can't determine exactly what causes a TIA. They the medicine that they give for a stroke, an actual stroke, they can give for a TIA, but I can't have that medication because I have brain aneurysms. Mm -hmm. So there's no, there's no fix for me at this point. I can tell you with the TIAs, we'll jump a little ahead. Um, I have worked with Duke for years trying to figure it out. And they just recently did a whole big blood workup and some genetic testing and everything came back fine thankfully, but I still don't have an answer as to why these are happening. 
So I bet too that um, I know this from experience. When my mom had a stroke, I think she had had a series of TIAs, mm-hmm. and people thought she was drunk. Yeah, you, you it can appear that way because yeah. you can't speak correctly, and you're kind of out in a daze, and you don't get it. Um, and people who are not experienced with it or don't know about it, I can see that assumption coming. Not um, getting the immediate help that you need, right? Um, right. Yeah. Um, the last the the last big one I had was December again, 2018, and I was home by myself when it happened, and. I was texting on my phone and all of a sudden I realized I wasn't, I wasn't spelling the words correctly and I couldn't figure out how to fix it. And I said, Oh no, it's happening. And my dog, I have a pit mix and she's not a, you know, she's not a support animal, but she jumped right on top of me and she wouldn't get off of me. So she sensed it too. Um, I was luckily able to get up and call 911 before I couldn't speak anymore. I was able to get my address out extremely slow. Um, and they were able to get here. And by the time they got here, I didn't have my visual function. Um, my blood pressure was through the roof. They took me to the hospital. I stayed for three days. Um, they thought that I had maybe a hole in my heart, a PFO, which can cause TIAs. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, Maybe, maybe we have an answer and we can fix it. And then they said, no, you don't really have a hole in your heart. Just kidding. So that was good news. But at the same time, it was like, not an answer. Yeah. Um, so I have, um, since then just to speak on how to help yourself, I have installed a home phone line. I don't share that phone number with anybody, but it rings all the time. You know, those telemarketers just get your number no matter what. But, um, (laughs) if I call 911 for my landline. I contacted my local fire department and told them what my health issues are mm-hmm. so that if they ever get a phone call from my home landline, they know exactly where I am. And if I can't talk, they know this woman has brain aneurysms. This woman has TIAs. This mm-hmm. woman goes to this hospital. So that was the best way that I could help myself to, to be prepared if it ever happened again when I was home by myself. So, and I thankfully haven't had to use that, (laughs) but it's in place if I need it. And then I have my MetAlert bracelet if I go out in public and something happens. And all my MetAlert bracelet says is brain aneurysms and what hospital I belong to and my emergency contact. But I think that's enough information for them to know. Please don't give me the clot medication that's going to kill me. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the things that I do to be prepared. I have an app on my phone um, for emergencies that'll open without a code that shows them what my blood type is, what my medical history is, what doctor I belong to, Mm -hmm. all of those things. So you prepare yourself as much as you can for if you know, you can't communicate. If you lose the ability to communicate, how can you let other people know what you need? Yeah. Wow. It's a lot to think about. It is a lot to think about. And, you know, it's scary because I've been there where you can't communicate. Um, And I've faced death more than once. And it's scary and it's debilitating. But when you come out on the other side of it, where you start to see the different perceptions and the different ways you can think about it, Mm-hmm. it becomes humbling mm-hmm. because you realize 
you know, that, that could have been me in the obituary section today, but it's not. Instead of focusing on, I could have died, I'm going to focus on, I'm alive. Yeah. yeah. So, but it takes a lot to, to make that transition when you go through something traumatic, um, like I did um, years of trying to figure out what path to take and how to get on that path. And even now, you know, 11 years later, I still have those days where I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I supposed to do with this life that I have? And how am I going to do it? And, you know, I have this disability and I have that disability. It's okay to think about that every so often and lay down in bed one day and just take the day off. No problem. There's nothing wrong with that. And you can't beat yourself up about it. You know, I had somebody come to me once and they said, um, you know, as a therapist, and I was telling her how my brain works. Like when I think about going to the grocery store, it's not, I'm just going to go pick up milk. It's, well, I got to go pick up milk and it has to be this kind of milk. And I got to make sure the date is this. And, oh, I got to get that. And, oh, I got to get this. And what time do I want to go? Because I want to be back by three o'clock. And I mean, it's just constant, constant, constant. And she looked at me and she was like, that has got to be exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it kind of is. So um, she and I are working on how do you control your thoughts um, so that you have more self-discipline um, to not get lost in, in the frenzy of the fact that your brain can't focus on one thing, just go get milk, no big deal. It, so we're working on that and we're using, um, I have to get into yoga, I haven't done that yet, but um but we're using like meditation and different self-help books and things of that effect. I've also found that if I sit idle mm -hmm. and I don't do anything, I drive myself crazy <laughs> and I lose, I lose brain power because I'm just sitting on my phone. What's going on with Facebook? Let me check TikTok. Let me see what's going on on Snap. And I literally I feel like I'm losing brain cells by doing that. So it's important that I have something to focus on, rather that's a project of redoing my cabinets in my kitchen, or mm -hmm. it's working with training my dog, or it's taking a college course just to take one. I have to, it's important to find something to focus on other than what your disability is or other than what your traumatic situation is. Your story, everybody's story is a wonderful story and it should be heard um, once that survivor is comfortable telling it. it. It should be heard. They're very, very important and they're priceless pieces of inspiration for other people that you don't even know you are touching. Yeah. Um, so your story can be a part of your life, but it doesn't have to be your whole life. You are not just this one thing that happened to you. You are way more than that. Yeah. So yeah. It, I, I appreciate that as a cancer survivor. Um, when it first happened, it was definitely defining me. Mm -hmm. And as time went on, I, I, you know, I just focused more on life. Mm -hmm. And now it's, uh, it's a part of me. It's part of my story, but it doesn't define me. I am not breast cancer. Right. I, I'm Joyce and, you know, I had breast cancer and that makes my story interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I totally get that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I guess we should go into the traumatic part of my story. Um, okay. So we were in March of 2000, 
nine. All right, so the headache started to come on a lot more often, not necessarily TIA type headaches, but just migraines, massive migraines. Yeah. I kept going to my PCP um, and we kept doing the injection route. And then finally he said, why don't you need to go see your neurologist because you know, your pattern has changed. So I went to go see my local neurologist and I told him the situation I was in and I told him what was happening. And I had found that if I was under more stress, the headaches would come on a lot worse, mm-hmm. which is a symptom of migraines. So, okay. Um, my neurologist told me that I, my migraines were changing because I was getting older and that I needed to take all of these medications every day to be pain-free and to regulate these migraines. Mm-hmm. In addition to the head pain, I had neck stiffness. I had lower back pain. I had massive exhaustion. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of those symptoms were discussed with him and they were put in the, the migraine category. So I went to the pharmacy that night. This is in, I want to say August. Yeah, I want to say August. Mm-hmm. I went to the pharmacy that night to get the prescriptions that he had prescribed me. And I was in a lot of pain because pain was almost a daily thing at this point. And I went to stand up to get the medications from the pharmacist because they had called my name and I winced because my back, I mean, it hurt so much. You could see the pain on my face every single day. Yeah. And he looked at me in my face and he said, I can't give you everything that he prescribed you because if I do, you're going to die. And I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) He said, I can see that you're in a lot of pain and I'm going to give you what I can safely give you that he's prescribed to you. But I have a call in to him to figure out the rest of it. Okay. So I went home and I took my medication and I laid down for a few hours and I got up and I felt a little better, not a ton better, but a little better. I went downstairs. I made some ramen soup because, you know, the days of cookouts and homemade meals and things like that were far in between because I just, I physically couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. Um, so I went back upstairs and I went to bed and the next morning I woke up, this is September 1st, 2009. The next morning I woke up and I was in a lot of pain. Um, I couldn't hold down water. I couldn't hold down coffee. Um, it was, it was bad. And my husband at the time, he had a qualifying test that day for work. That was very important. Mm-hmm. And he said, do you want me to stay home? And I said, no, I want you to go take your test and then just come right back home after you're done with your test. Okay. I had made it a point to walk my son to the bus stop every day. If he wasn't carpooling with me that morning, my body would not allow me to do that. So I stood on the front porch and I watched the bus go by at the house and I waved and I went back inside and I laid down in my bed and I was in and out. I want to say in and out of consciousness, but you can say in and out of sleep. I would fall asleep and not realize that I had fallen asleep. And then I would wake up and kind of wonder how I fell asleep because I didn't remember falling asleep and I'm still in this massive amount of pain and I still can't hold down water and I still, it's bad. It's really bad. But at that point I didn't know what to do and who to turn to because PCP is just going to say, give her another shot. ER is going to say it's a migraine neurologist is going to say, take an opioid. Well, 
I ended up calling, I called my neurologist. He was at the prison that day helping the prisoners. So he called his assistant back and ordered some Tamiflu for me because he thought I had the flu based on the symptoms I described over the phone. Okay. Then um, I called my PCP and he said, well, it sounds like you're having another migraine. Why don't you just come on in for another shot? I don't want another shot. I don't, I want an answer. I don't, I really just, I don't want another shot. I just want this to stop. Yeah. So I called my friend who lived up the block, who happened to be a Duke life flight nurse. And she'll come back into this story later. Very, very important part of the story. Um, and she took me to the local ER that we have here. And the lady in triage is, she seemed like I was bothering her. Um, she asked me if I could walk. Mind you, I went in there with a dish towel, walking like a hunchback because mm -hmm. it just hurt. Everything hurt. And um, she says, okay, well, can you walk? And I said, yeah, I can walk. And I stood up and I winced again because the massive pain shot into my back when I would stand up. Yeah. And she turned and she looked at me and she, I thought you said you could walk. <laughs> okay, man. Yeah, I can. Just give me, give me like 30 seconds. So they put me in a dark room and they wanted to know if I was pregnant. That was their biggest concern. Are you pregnant? No, no, I'm not pregnant. Well, we need to make sure you're not pregnant before we give you anything. Okay. I'm not pregnant and I'm not getting up. So do what you have to do. My pain is like a 15 on your one to 10. I need some help. Yeah. So finally they gave me the medication um, and that calmed me, calmed me down, put me to sleep, took some of the pain away. I woke up a few hours later and, uh, my husband at the time was there at that point. And he, the doctor said, you know, what's your pain scale? And I said, well, it's probably like a, a four or a six at this point. And mind you, when I came in, I said it was a 15. Right. So they said, you can go home because you're better. I still can't walk straight. And I got some serious blurred vision and I'm still in pain, but I can go home. Yeah. Yeah. You just need to follow up with your neurologist. Yeah. And my husband looked at the doctor at that point and he said, when is this going to stop? When is this, th this needs to get better because you know, the inconvenience wasn't only in my life. It was in everybody around me's life. You know, I'm not cooking. I'm not participating. I'm not talking. I'm not, you know, I'm not myself. So everybody's being negatively affected, which makes me as the, the patient or the victim, however you want to put it, feel even worse. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, we follow up, we go home to follow up with a neurologist. This time I went to, well, wait, I went to my PCP. PCP said, I'm going to send you to a different neurologist because it's obvious the neurologist you have is not doing what they should. Mm -hmm. So this is October, 2009. They send me to a new neurologist. I meet with a new neurologist, very nice man who was young. And I was afraid that because he was young, he wouldn't have the experience or the knowledge to yes. deal with what I was dealing with. Um, but I'm really grateful that he was young because he was right out of the textbook and he, he had a lot of knowledge right up in here instead of way back here from learning it, you know, 30 <laughs> years ago. So, uh, I go see him and he gives me the same general neurology, neurology, um, appointment. 
you know, here's a, here's a sheet for three months. I want you to tell me what your pain level is. I don't want you to eat this. I want you to make sure you're getting sleep, take all your caffeine out. Did you just say take all my caffeine out? <laughs> oh, oh, that's going to be bad because I'm like a two to three Starbucks kind of person a day. You're like, how am I going to do that? Um, so I left frustrated because I felt like I wasn't gaining any momentum. Like, okay, I got to wait another three months for pain every single day that ranges on a scale for, you know, massive neck pain, massive back pain. I just want my life back. Um, so we left that office and we went and we had a beer and some chicken wings and some cheese fries because. I knew I couldn't have those anymore after that day. He just told me that's why you have migraines. So um, it was probably a week after that appointment and it was about two o'clock in the morning and I called his office and I left him a message and I said, I can't do this anymore. I don't know what's wrong. Something is wrong and I need help and I don't know who to turn to and I don't know who to talk to. Just something's wrong. He called me the next day and he got me into his office two days later. So now we're in November of 2009. And he said, I want to do a scan of your neck because I think you might have MS. Because now in addition to the pain in the back and the neck and the head and the in and out and I can't hold down water and all that. Now I have these massive flushing feelings that are irradiating from my chest all the way through my body. And I have no idea what they are. They scare the hell out of me. I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going to have a heart attack now because I, I don't know what's happening. Um, so he wanted to see if I had MS. So he orders a scan of my neck and he goes, we're going to go ahead and take a look at your brain while you're in there because nobody's really looked at it in depth. So it was a, an MRI, I think with and without of the, the neck and the spine and the brain. Mm -hmm. I went in the Saturday after Thanksgiving to have that scan done and Duke and Carolina were playing that day. And I'm a huge Carolina fan, even this year. Yes, this year, I'm still a Carolina fan. She's got <laughs> that on tape. Um, but Duke and Carolina were playing and my dad was at the game and the scan took forever. And they would let me check my phone to see the scores and text, you know, sport talk to my dad when they would have to change the films. And I'm at Duke Hospital in a Carolina sweatshirt. So, <laughs> I mean, that's love right there. Uh, so they did the scan. It took forever. So that was on a Saturday. Monday, I called my doctor's office to see if they had the results. And the nurse said, yep, we have the results. And I said, okay, well, what are they? She's like, I can't tell you. The doctor's going to call you. I mean, you can't tell me. Like, they're my results. It's my brain and it's my back. And so you could tell me. And she's like, no, the doctor's going to call you. Okay. So at that point I'm thinking I have MS. Oh, it's got to be MS. So let me Google MS. Let me check out MS foundations. Let me educate myself on what I'm facing and how I can do this in the best possible way. So I looked it up. Was it scary? Yeah, it was. Did it look like it was going to be a good time? No, it didn't. But it was an answer and I could live with it. And there was known, you know, components of this disease and it wasn't going to take me out. So, okay, I'm ready for my MS answer. Finally on Thursday at about 4.15, he and I get on the phone and I'm at work um, with all my heat and pads 
everywhere because I'm still in so much pain. And he, and I, I'm prepared. Hey, so I got MS. So what, what do we do? How do we do this? And he said, you, I think we found the, the issue. Um, you have a large aneurysm behind your left eye. Okay. I don't know anything about aneurysms. I'm 29 years old. Why do I, why would I know? Okay. I have an answer. I have an answer. What's the next step? Tell me what the next step is. Like I'm so excited. I'm a kid in a candy store. What is the next step? Let's get this taken care of. He said, okay, well you have to do an MRI scan. Okay. When can we do that? Scheduling is going to call you. Scheduling called me about 10 minutes later. And at that point, I mean, I had a great job. I had a wonderful job. Um, and I enjoyed my job. I love my job. Um, but I had used up all of my paid time off. So everything was being docked at that point. Every time I called out for, you know, a headache or what have you, mm -hmm. I, it was really affecting every aspect of my life. So I knew that I was on dock time. So when scheduling called, I said, I need a Saturday or an evening or a very early morning appointment. And she's looking and she's like, well, we can get you in on a Saturday in eight weeks. Again, I don't know what aneurysms are at this point. Yeah. I'm like, I don't, I don't, based on what he told me, I don't think I should wait that long. Um, I said, when's your next available? She said, tomorrow at 9 a.m. Okay, I'll be there. So I went to my scan at 9 a.m. that next morning. They did the MRA. Thankfully, that one only took like five or 10 minutes. It doesn't take very long for an MRA of the brain. Yeah. And the hospital where they did the MRA is right here. And my doctor's office was right here. So it was within walking distance, a comfortable walking distance. So I walked over to my doctor's office after my MRA and said, hey, you want to share this results with me? And they were like, we don't have them yet. And I was like, okay, well, I'll go get some breakfast and then I'll come back. And they said, okay. So I went and I got breakfast and I came back and they said, oh, we still don't have them. Okay. Well, I went back over to the hospital and I got them to make my own copy of the scan and I put, I took it back to my doctor's office and I handed it to them and I said, here you go. Can you tell me what they say? <laughs> well, no, we need time to read them. Okay. Well, this is a Friday and I had done my research on aneurysms Thursday night when I got home and those things are scary. So I really like to know what's going to happen before you guys shut down today, if, if at all possible. She goes, okay, he'll see you at 1.30. I said, okay. So I left. We went to the mall and just kind of hung around and got a pretzel from this pretzel place and um, went back to the doctor's office. And it was like, it was like, I don't know, Grey's Anatomy. It was like a TV show. We walked through the threshold of the doctor's office and the lady behind the desk stood straight up and said, he's been waiting for you. Come on back here. <laughs> the hell you mean he's been waiting for me? Why didn't he call me? I would have come sooner. Like, what are you, why are you scared lady? Why are you making me scared? Yeah. Your energy is bringing on some weirdness to me. Please just smile at me and tell me to have a great day. Um, so they took me to the last room on the left. Um, I will never, ever, ever, ever forget that room. It was just a regular neurology room, had the bench and computers and whatnot. But he comes in 
and he goes, it is, it's a very large aneurysm behind your left eye. And I can't say that it's definitely causing your issues, but it's likely. Um, and I said, well, is it operable? Because at this point I I'd done my research on them and I knew that I had two operating options if they could get to it. If they mm-hmm. couldn't, then I knew my lifespan was going to be considerably less than what I thought it was going to be from being a little girl. So he goes, I'm not sure. I have a neurosurgeon coming to talk to you. I'm 29 years old. Mm -hmm. I have a nine-year-old little boy. I have a life. I, okay, well, bring him on in. So the neurosurgeon comes in and he wasn't, he wasn't my neurosurgeon, the one that they wanted me to go with. He was um, another practicing neurosurgeon within the same group. Mm -hmm. So he came in and he discussed the two surgical options. And because I was a young, healthy 29 year old female, we went with the most invasive procedure, which is a clipping. Mm -hmm. Um, so they told me that my neurosurgeon was going to call me that afternoon. Okay. Well, you know, yesterday I was living life in pain and it kind of hurt a lot and I didn't like it and I wanted it to stop, but I didn't realize wanting it to stop was going to mean somebody was going to cut my head open and remove my skull and play in my brain. Like it's a playground. Okay. (laughs) So that was a bit much. Um, I was able to hold my composure in the doctor's office. And luckily when my husband at the time and I got into the elevator, we were the only two people in that elevator. Um, and it took all I could do not to drop to my knees in that elevator. And I gave myself that, I don't know, 45 seconds, however long it was to get to the bottom floor. The doors opened. I wiped my eyes. I walked out like a, like a boss, like, okay, I've got to face this head on. This is, this is what I have to do. And you know, I'm going to make the best of it. So I started to get on the phone with family members and tell them what was going on. And we headed home and the neurosurgeon called me that afternoon and he was very um, nonchalant about it. He said, this is, it's December 4th. He said, well, we can wait until after Christmas to go ahead and, you know, clip it. And I don't, I don't really want to wait until after Christmas. Like, I think that's a long time. And I looked up the brain aneurysm stuff and all the symptoms that I'm having are equivalent to a ruptured brain aneurysm, not just a brain aneurysm. So, and the bigger they get, the more likely they are to burst because the thinner that wall gets, the thinner the bubble gets. Yeah. Yeah. So he said, well, you know, I really think we can wait till after Christmas. And I, I said, you know, right now my insurance pays 90, 10 and after January 1st, it's going to pay 80, 20. So what do you want to do? We'll get you in within the next 10 days. Mm-hmm. Okay. So his scheduling assistant is going to call me and we're going to get everything scheduled. All right. So I go to pick up my son from after school care that day and we get him home. We, we go and we get little Caesar's pizza because that was something that we would do that he enjoyed, even though that stuff is horrible to eat. 
<laughs> um, who knows? That might be the last one standing with this virus going on. Um, so we went and we got the pizza and we're sitting around the kitchen table and it's a Friday night and his 10th birthday party is scheduled at our house that next day. And my son has known I've been sick. Um, there were nights that I would tell him I was going to go to just lay down for 10 minutes and he would come try to wake me up and he wouldn't be able to wake me up. And I would wake up at three o'clock in the morning and there was a pot of SpaghettiOs on the stove and him laid out in his clothes from the same day. So he had been directly affected too. And that, that hurt me to the core that I couldn't be the mom that I wanted to be and that I had been. So we're sitting around the kitchen table and I've got to tell my nine-year-old son that I have to have brain surgery, but I have to be sensitive about it because he's young and I don't want to scare him. And how is this going to work? Well, my son is very direct, kind of like me, if you haven't been able to tell. <laughs> and um, yeah. it's genetic, I think. <laughs> um, so we're sitting at the table and I tell my son, you know, the doctors have found out why mommy's so sick. I said, mommy's got, um, mommy's got a balloon in her head. I didn't say burn in her head and they need to go in there and fix it before it gets too big. My nine-year-old looked me dead in the face and said, so you're having brain surgery, mom. <laughs> yeah honey I am and we all sat there and we, we cried for five or ten minutes and then we wiped the tears and we kept going with life you know what my kid has his 10 year old birthday party tomorrow and we promised him a nerve obstacle course in the yard with his friends and we've got 10 kids coming over and we've got to get the the chicken nuggets and the fries and the soda and the cake and the so Put your big girl panties on, girl, because this is happening. So it was interesting that year for his birthday because all the kids were outside playing and, and enjoying life and, you know, having a good time and, and, and still in their innocence, if you will. Yeah. Meanwhile, all the adults are inside crying and talking about what's coming up for, for us. Yeah. And I'm really glad that birthday party was scheduled that way that the kids could still do their thing and not be negatively affected by what was going on in real life. Mm -hmm. So birthday party went off without a hitch. It was great. I had a good time. Um, we didn't know if I was going to go into the hospital that Monday or if it was going to be December 15th because they said that there was a case. That's what they call us. There was a case before me, and if anything happened and he wasn't able to proceed, that I would then be next. So mm -hmm. I had the possibility of going on Monday, which was my son's actual 10th birthday. So um, we put the Christmas decorations up on Sunday because that was a thing. I was like, I want to see all the Christmas decorations in the house ready for Christmas before I go into the hospital. Yeah. The doctors kept telling me, that everything was going to be okay, that I was going to be home in time for Christmas. I was only going to have to spend three to five days in the hospital. It was going to be a one, two, three in out. I think they believed that. I think they believed themselves on that. I mean, they have much more experience in that aspect than I do. 
So I'm sure they're assuming a 29 year old female is going to bounce back from the surgery a whole lot quicker than a 65 or 70 year old female might. But in my gut, I knew it wasn't going to go that way. I knew something was going to happen. I didn't know what, and I wasn't afraid that I was going to die. I never felt like I was going to die, but I knew it wasn't going to go right. And I kept trying to push that energy back off of myself. Like, don't do that. You're spiking yourself. You're going to make it not go right if you keep thinking this way. Yeah, yeah. So I focused my attention on spending time with my family and getting everything ready for Christmas because I knew I was not going to be home for Christmas. So I didn't want my son affected in any way. I wanted to put a big parachute over him and say, this can't touch you. I want you to know your mommy as your mommy. This, this is not going to touch you. Your life is going to continue to go exactly the way it's always been. And I mean, I was setting up his carpool for his baseball, for his church classes, for his schools. Um, all the Christmas presents were wrapped and ready to go. All the stocking stuffers were, were taken care of all the presents for family all the bills. I didn't want this to affect anybody. I didn't want it to touch anybody because it wasn't theirs. It was mine and I didn't want to inconvenience people. So we found out that Monday that I wasn't going to go in on Monday. I was going to go in on the 15th. So again, over those, those extra days that I had, I got everything as ready as I could. I mean, I wrote, um, cards to my family. I changed the sheets on all the beds, made sure everybody had clean towels for when they came into town. <laughs> it was all about the illusion that everything was going to be okay because I knew it was an illusion. I knew it wasn't true, but I didn't feel like I could tell them that because they were scared. I mean, I watched my family cry and be concerned and thinking the worst things that are going to happen. And I'm sitting there patting them on the back. Oh, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. <laughs> so we checked into the hospital on the 14th of December. They did an angiogram. That's the first time that I met the neurosurgeon and he came out and he said, okay, so it's not one aneurysm. It's, it's two. So my first aneurysm grew a bubble. It grew another aneurysm on top of it. So you can only imagine how thin that wall must have been. Mm -hmm. So he called it a snowman and he said, it's no big deal. We can still move forward with surgery tomorrow. So they're going to take you to recovery and then you're going to go to your room for the night. Okay. So that's what we did. And my family came and visited me and, you know, I had some family members that wanted to crawl into the bed with me and feel sorry for me. And I had some family members that were trying to hide how they felt. And I had some family members that were all about questions for the doctor. And in all honesty, I really appreciated seeing my family. I'm, I'm grateful that I had that support, but I kind of just wanted all the noise to stop just just stop the noise for right now, please. I have a very, very crazy day tomorrow and I need time to, you know, digest everything that's going to happen tomorrow because that day is here. You are having brain surgery tomorrow. Yeah. So 
Um, when my family left, things calmed down, but then they had to start giving me the medication to shrink the amount of fluid in my brain to prep for surgery tomorrow. So I wasn't ever really able to decompress that night because, you know, medicine makes you different. Right. So that next morning they come and again, I'm a very demanding person and I was in a different, different mindset back then. Um, the, the hospital gentleman comes and he flips the light on at like five 30 in the morning. And he's like, come on, it's time to go. And I'm looking at him like, you out your mind. Like, (laughs) I'm sorry. I need to wash my face, brush my teeth, um, comb my hair, go to the bathroom and then it'll be, it'll be time to go. And he's like, well, the doctor's waiting. Uh Uh-huh. I'm his first case. So he can wait for five minutes. So I go and I do all of those things and it wasn't, I think my, my need to do those things was routine, but I needed it so that I still understood I'm still me, even though I'm going through this, I needed that five minutes of my normal routine because I didn't know when I was going to get that back or if I was. So we did all that and I, I was bad. I snuck my netbook and my cell phone and pictures of my son and my rosary all under my sheets on my bed. So all of that went down to pre-op with me, even though it wasn't supposed to. Um, my biggest fear was that I was not going to be able to communicate. That was my fear. So I held on to everything that I could that would allow me to communicate. So my phone, my netbook, you know, pointing at pictures of my son, things like that. I I was gravitating towards, you know, devices that would allow me to communicate and alter ways other than speaking. So they took all that stuff away from me. And the anesthesiologist came in and he said, yeah, we're going to pump you up with three medications and I'm going to be with you the whole time and so on and so on. So they take me back and the surgery was six and a half hours. And I woke up in ICU that night around 1130. And I remember feeling my head and there was this, um, you know, there were gauze or cloth or something. And it was really crispy up here. <laughs> and um, I had looked out of my ICU door and it was a sliding glass door. So I saw the silhouette of my dad and I said, hey, daddy. And he said, hey, baby, how are you feeling? And I said, it hurts, daddy, it hurts. And he said, they're going to give you something. And I said, it's not going to work because that's the mind frame I had. It's not going to work. Nothing works. It's just pain all the time as it had been for almost a year at that point. So they give me Dilaudid. Yep, that stuff works. It works really well. You should not ever have it unless you're under the care of a physician at all times. Um, But it worked. It took the pain away and I was able to go to sleep. And I woke up that next morning. Again, totally different person back then than I am now. Again, as as I said before, these experiences, they humble you. Um, I woke up and nobody was there. It was just me and my ICU nurse, Andrew. And um, I didn't have my phone. I didn't have my glasses. I'm blind as a bat, by the way. So (laughs) if I don't have my glasses, I can't see anything. So, or my contacts. Um, I didn't have my Starbucks coffee. I was upset. 
why isn't anybody here? That was my, my, my frame of mind at that point, you know, not you just survived this massive surgery that has, you know, a 60% chance of survival and you know, your name and you're communicating and you're breathing and you should really be focused on that. (laughs) Um, but I wasn't. So I picked up the phone, the hospital phone, and I called my house from memory. (gasps) Should have been grateful for that too. But, um, my husband was at home sleeping and, um, he was shocked. He was like, Carrie, like, who else is it going to be? Yeah, it's me. Why aren't you here? Like, I need my glasses. I need my phone. What are you doing? And he was like, okay, okay, I'm going to take a shower. I'll, I'll be there, you know, in a little bit. So meanwhile, I asked my ICU nurse, can I walk? I want to take a walk. Can I walk? Because I really want to go home this weekend. Like, I'd really like to walk. Like, let's go. So he lets me walk. And after that walk, things went downhill. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in an immense amount of pain. Um, my head hurt so bad, worse than before. Um, I was in and out, awake, asleep, awake, asleep. Um, by the time my family got there that day, I might have said hello. And that's probably as far as that went from what I remember. <laughs> they put me in a step down room from ICU, which I don't understand why, because I went from being okay to not being okay. Yeah. But they put me in a step down room, kept me there, um, thought that I had a brain fluid leak, which is a typical uh, complication to the clipping surgery that I had had. So they injected my spine with my blood mixed with a coagulant three different times to stop said leak, put me back in a regular room, had physical therapy come see me that next day. And she really wanted me to get up and walk. And I kept refusing to walk with her. I was like, I'm in a lot of pain. I'm in a lot of pain. I can't do this. The third time she came back to the room was early afternoon and she refused to not let me walk. So I walked with her like Igor and very slowly. And she wrote on my sheet that I was ready to go home. So they came to me and they said, you know, you're ready to go home. We're going to check you out. I don't want to go home. Please don't send me home. Something's wrong. Something's really wrong. I'm in a lot of pain. Please do not send me home. I am telling my family this. I am telling PT this. I am telling anybody who will listen to me. I am telling this too. They don't listen. They take my IVs out. They sedate me. They put me in a wheelchair. I'm riding in the wheelchair with my head down like this because I can't hold my head up because it hurts so bad. It hurts worse than it did when I I was worse off than when I was, when I came, you know, than I was when I came in Mm -hmm. and I don't know. It just baffles me. So I get home. I'm home. I can't walk up my stairs. I don't want to walk around. I'm not eating. I'm not drinking. I'm not talking. Um, I have 102 fever. I'm in a lot of pain. My husband calls the resident on call and she says, you know, give her some Tylenol since she has a a fever and give her a suppository because she's constipated. That's why her head hurts. Those were, those were his words. 
as to what happened. Um, he left to go to the pharmacy to get the suppository and called my friend, the Duke Life Light nurse from up the block and asked her to come sit with me while he ran to the pharmacy. So she did. She came down and she was like, come on, girl, you got to walk. You got to just at least try. Mm-hmm. I'm in a lot of pain. I really don't want to walk. She's like, okay, look, we're just going to walk from here to the bonus room. That's all we're going to do. And, you know, let's see how you do. So she gets me up and she makes me walk. And as soon as I get to the bonus room, I find the couch and I lay down on the couch. She's like, no, 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 no. You got to get up. Come on, let's walk to the office. So we walk to the office and I get in the chair and I sit down as soon as I possibly can. And at that point, my husband came home and he was like, oh, look, you're up and you're walking. And I, she told him, she was like, she's in a lot of pain and, you know, doesn't look good. Well, he proceeded to yell and cuss and be frustrated at me. Um, you know, if you're not willing to get better, if you're not going to do the effing things you need to do to get better, then you're never going to get better. And, you know, just, just, he had lost his patience with the whole situation. Wow. I don't have any excuse for that for him, nor will I accept any excuse from him for that. But I get the frustration. So I stood up and tried to run at him to punch him, which is not my personality at all. So that was way out of character. Um, And when I got to him, my knees gave out a little bit and he caught me and I was able to get my balance again. And I, I walked quickly to my bed and laid down and threw the covers over my head. My friend picked me up and when she did, my eyes went like this and I started to projectile vomit everywhere. I believe even though my medical records don't say it, I believe in that moment when she picked me up that my brain aneurysm ruptured. That's what I believe. Now, something, a a tidbit of information that I left out, sorry, is that when they cut my head open for the clipping surgery, there was dried blood on my brain, which meant the aneurysm had already ruptured. A rupture doesn't have to be an explosion. It can be a leak. So Mm -hmm. mine was leaking, AKA rupturing and then clotting itself. Right. So when that happens, the hospital is supposed to keep you a minimum of two weeks Mm -hmm. just to be sure that you don't have any of the complications post-surgery or that you don't have a massive stroke or you don't have vasospasm or, you know, just to make sure you're good before you go home. So my hospital did not do that. They sent me home less than 72 hours after my brain surgery. Anyway, so my friend picks me up. My brain aneurysm has, in my opinion, ruptured. And she says, she's got to go back to the hospital. She's got to go right now. You can take her, you can call an ambulance, but there's no question. She's got to (laughs) go. So when they told me I was going to go back to the hospital 22 hours after I got home, I grabbed my pillow. I put my shoes on, I put my jacket on, and I walked downstairs on my own, kissed my son goodbye, told him I loved him and to be a good boy, and I'd be back as soon as I could. And I crawled into the back of the truck, and we rode to the hospital. When we got to the hospital, my Duke Life Flight friend, her husband is an ER nurse at this hospital, and he was on staff that day. So instead of me having to go through triage and in the waiting room and check in and things like that, 
he was right there with a gurney when we got to the hospital and I was rushed right back into a room. And by the time we got to the hospital, I didn't know my own name. Um, I didn't, I didn't know what was going on. I heard people asking me questions and apparently I was just laughing a lot. Um, my husband said, I kept asking him who he was and kept telling him not to cry. I don't have any recollection of any of that. Um, they did a CT scan and it showed that I had blood, air and fluid all on my brain and that my brain had shifted from center line by 6.5 millimeters. When you get to 10 millimeters, the chances of your survival are slim to none. So they told my husband that I was in the last 45 minutes of my life and that they needed to open my brain again. So they rushed me back to brain surgery to relieve, I guess, the pressure and clean things. I don't know what it is, but whatever they did, I woke up the next day. When I woke up the next day, I couldn't communicate. I couldn't talk at all. Um, I could hear the questions they were asking me and I thought I understood them. I couldn't write. They would ask me to do like two plus two on a piece of paper. I couldn't write. I didn't know my name. I knew the people in the room and I knew they were supposed to be there, but I wasn't exactly sure, you know, who they were in relation to me, like my dad. <laughs> um, so finally, they asked me a question. It's the first time they ever got a reaction out of me. They asked me, do you have a child? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I got one of those. I'm pretty, I, I'm pretty sure I remember correctly, so I shook my head. They said, what's your child's name? I don't know. I can't find it. I know it's in my head somewhere. And I know I'm supposed to know it, but I can't find it. And I can't even communicate the words to say, I don't know. So at that point, I knew something's really wrong. Like that's when it went off in my head. This isn't right. This is what you were afraid of. It's happening. Yeah. So they realized, you know, when I started crying that, you know, I'm understanding what they're saying. They put me on a blood pressure medication um, to heighten my blood pressure to get more blood to my brain because I was in what's called phasospasm. Mm -hmm. So basically, let's say your carotid artery is supposed to be open like this. So the blood can run to and from your heart as it's supposed to. Mine was open like this. So I wasn't getting enough blood and oxygen to my brain because it was spasmed. Mm -hmm. So they gave me the blood pressure medication, lift up my blood pressure, get that blood pumping faster to see if it would work. And it did work. I was able to communicate better, not 100%, but better. Um, and I remember being so hot and uncomfortable and nauseous on that medication. And they had me on it for pretty much the whole day, I believe. My dad said I, I blew up like a balloon because all the retaining of water from the medication so that night, um, they decided that I couldn't be on the blood pressure medication anymore because it was affecting some other organs. Okay. So they start to wean that down. And when they do that, I start to go more into, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> so the doctor came in the room that night and he was on my left side and my family was all gathered on my right side. 
this doesn't look good. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm holding my doctor's hand and I look at him and I say, why? And he says, I can't tell you why, but we're doing the best we can to fix it. Okay. So I had two options at that point. I could have a bypass of the artery, which means they got to open it up again. Or they could put a verapamil ball, an anti-spasming medication, directly into my artery through um, through angiogram mm-hmm. um, to hopefully stop that spasm. And it's less invasive, and hopefully we don't make that artery any more upset than it already is by doing this procedure. Mm-hmm. So my family decided, I was in no mental capacity to make any decisions at that point. My family decided that they were going to do the medicine ball. Mm-hmm. So they wheel me down to the angiogram room, which is a pretty cool room because there's like six televisions up on the wall and you can see what they're doing inside your brain um, or your heart or whatever part of your body's being filmed. Yeah. So it took 22 minutes. There was a 20% chance that this procedure was going to work, but it took 22 minutes from the time they started the procedure to the time that it ended. Mm-hmm. I have a picture of my artery like this at the beginning. And I have a picture of my artery like this at the end. Mm. So it worked. So when they wheeled me out of that angiogram room and my family was up on the wall, I could recognize them all. I could smile. I could speak. Mm. I wasn't a hundred percent by any means, but I was a whole lot better than I had been. Yeah. My family was elated. They were so excited. They all went to TGI Fridays to get chicken wings and beer and cheese fries. (laughs) I'm glad y'all just went through that roller coaster. Enjoy that. (laughs) Um, So they had told my family that it would be, you know, an hour, hour and a half. They had to connect me back up into ICU before they would be able to see me. So like two hours goes by and my family hasn't been able to see me and they're out in the waiting room. What's going on? Why can't we see her? Why can't we see her? And the next thing I remember, I woke up with an oxygen mask on my face and I cannot breathe. I cannot breathe. I can't say a syllable. I can't say a word, but I can still recognize my family. Mm-hmm. So from a traumatic point of view, I remember my dad standing at the doorway looking concerned, but not saying anything. I remember my aunt directly in my ear, cry, no, excuse me, in my face, crying hysterically. Mm-hmm. I remember my husband in my ear explaining the medical stuff that was happening because he was an EMT. So he was explaining, oh, they're going to bring a CPAP. They're going to give you some Lasix to dry out your lungs. You're in pulmonary edema. Okay. And my nurse, Helen, who I had a few times while I was in ICU, who was a phenomenal individual. She was just running back and forth from machine to machine. She was holding it down as best as she could and, dealing with my crazy family who was told not to come in the room. (laughs) Um, So this, it it felt like it took forever for the CPAP to get there, but it finally did. And I remember them putting it on my face. And then the next thing I remember is three 30 in the morning and I'm waking up and I can breathe and I'm waking up because I can feel the vibrations of the CPAP on my face when I breathe, which means my lungs are dry. They're not, they're not full of fluid anymore. So Helen takes the mask off and I ask right away, is my dad here? And she goes, yeah, he's in the waiting room. And I said, can I see my dad? 
And she said, yeah, but let me get you cleaned up first because you were sweating a little bit. So she changed my sheets and, you know, we had a little powwow for a minute. And my dad came back there and I so badly wanted to have a conversation to understand everything that had happened because I had just missed, I don't know, five days of my life. Like what happened? What's the time frame? Why did this happen? When did this happen? You know, go, 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 go. I probably talked to my dad for three minutes before I went right back to sleep. <laughs> Um, so after all of that happening in the hospital, I stayed, I believe it was for another four days and I really wanted to go home. I think home, if you can go home to heal, that's the best place you can be for yourself. Yeah. And I really, really wanted to go home. So they did a scan of my brain and there was still some fluid on my brain, but they said that I could go home. So I went home and the day that I went home. My family didn't know I was coming home. Only the people that were at the hospital knew I was going home. And I remember my dad was so upset. He didn't, he didn't want me to go home yet. He was like, no, you still need to be here. I really don't think it's a good idea. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm, dad, I'm going home. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when we got home, my husband, well, actually, let me go back. When I got in the car, I remember thinking the car was really small, like, I remember it being bigger and I thought that was strange, but no big deal. Let's keep going. So I get in the car. I have these beautiful wildflowers in my lap. It's, you know, probably December 29th, somewhere around there in North Carolina. So it's kind of cold for us North Carolina people about that time. <laughs> I keep rolling down the window and turning the music up real loud and singing the songs that are on the radio. And I am just so happy that I know all the words and I'm so happy to be able to smell the flowers and feel the wind. I don't care that it's cold just yet. Turn the heat all the way up and roll down all these windows. We're rolling. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't work that way. My husband was like, you're going to give yourself a headache and you're going to get sick. Turn all the windows and turn down the music. <laughs> I just broke out of jail, boy. Like, I want to have a good time. So anyway, we get home and he opens the garage and closes it very quickly after we pull in. And I'm still sitting in the car. Mind you, my son does not know I'm coming home. I'm still sitting in the car and all of a sudden there's this, these two handprints on the window and it's my son. And he's so excited. He's so excited. And, um, I get out of the car and we have this really big hug and he's so happy to see me home. The last time he saw me was, um, Christmas Eve. They allowed my family to come into ICU, um, to have a small Christmas celebration. So he did get to see me on Christmas Eve, but he was, um, he was very timid when he was there. He was scared because he saw all these needles and machines and mom doesn't look like herself. And, and I had tried so hard. I had put makeup on and had my hair washed and straightened at the hospital and put on regular pajamas all in an effort to appear normal to him. Yeah. But by then the illusion had been broken and he had been affected. His innocence had been lost because he had been negatively, negatively impacted by what had happened to me, even though I tried so hard to protect him from that. So anyway, we get home. My son's happy to see me. I'm happy to see him. I can't tell you how many casseroles and pies and breads we had in the, in the fridge and in the freezer from all the neighbors and the friends, which was <laughs> much appreciated. 
Uh, my mother-in-law was there. She had stayed at my house um, while I was in the hospital to help take care of my son and my dog. My dog sees me and I have to get on the ground with her because she is <laughs> so excited. And so she and I have, you know, a 10 minute meeting together and kisses and cuddles and pets and wags and all that. It was wonderful. So I get upstairs by myself. I walk the stairs by myself. And the first thing I want to do is take a shower. And I hadn't taken a full on shower in two weeks at this point. So <laughs> I want to take a shower. And the first time I had come home from the first surgery, I didn't brush my teeth, wash my face, want to take a shower, any of those things, because I was in a lot of pain. Yeah. yeah. So wanting to take a shower and being able to take a shower was just phenomenal for, for me. So I want to take the shower and my husband's like, okay, well, I'm going to watch you. You don't need to watch me take a shower. Like I'm, I'm fine. You don't Nope. I'm going to make sure you're okay. All right. If you insist. So I take my shower, I put fresh jammies on, I brush my teeth and I get in my bed. Cause I know I, I don't have a whole lot of energy at this point. You know, just getting home was taxing, but so worth it. So I get in my bed and I don't want to turn on the TV because I can't follow the TV. Being able to focus at this point is not, it's not, it's not a good idea. <laughs> you don't want to do things that stress your brain after brain surgery and focusing is a brain stress, believe it or not. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm in my bed and all of a sudden my son comes in the room and he's in his jammies. Now, mind you, it's a decent afternoon and he had been out playing with his friends when I got home. And he comes in and he's in his jammies and he says, mommy, can we watch a movie? Can I lay down with you? Oh yeah, honey, you can. <laughs> Please come lay down with me and don't ever leave my side again. And what movie do you want to watch? So we end up watching Transformers. He's watching it. I'm just seeing a bunch of colorful blurs going across the screen. <laughs> so then it's time for dinner. My mother-in-law had made pot roast and these potato dumplings that I used to like. And um, so I get to eat my food in bed and my son sees that. And he's like, well, can I have dinner in bed? His dad's like, no. I was like, yeah, you can. <laughs> yeah, you can. <laughs> <laughs> so my son and I spent that, that whole night together as much as it possibly could. And it was time for me to go to sleep. I was, I was exhausted. So my son goes to bed and he's like, you're going to be here in the morning, right, mommy? Yes, baby, I'm going to be here. I'm going to be here in the morning. So after that, things progressively got better, but they weren't, they, I wasn't what I was before and I couldn't quite figure out why, like what's going on? Like, I know I have to heal and I know I've got to be under my doctor's care, but why is everything so slow? <laughs> why can't I focus? Why well, I'm tired because my body just went through a bunch of stuff. I mean, it is what it is. What was never explained to me when I left the hospital was the amount of damage that having the blood and the air and the fluid on my brain had done, what that permanent damage was. Mm -hmm. um, so I had no idea. So I called my neurosurgeon and I said, hey, I'm having trouble focusing in this, that, and the third. And he was like, we're going to send you to cognitive therapy. Okay, I got no idea what cognitive therapy is. I'm like, I'm just going to get back to my life. And I went to cognitive therapy, and one of the exercises that they did with me, and I can't drive at this point, 
so my dad's taking me, my friends are taking me, my husband's taking me, whatever. And whoever takes me, I don't care. Sit in on the, sit in on the session. That's fine. I don't have anything to hide. So one day I was there with my dad and the exercise was, I want you to push the button every time the voice says the number seven. Okay. So the voice would say 10, nine, five, four, seven, and you would hit the button every time it said seven. And it was very monotone. There wasn't a, a difference in the tone of voice. All, everything was said the same. Mm-hmm. So I thought I had hit all the sevens and the lady looks at me and she goes, you missed five sevens. What? No, I hit all sevens. I heard him. I was listening. I hit all the sevens. No, you didn't. Yeah, I did. No, you didn't. Yeah, I did. Why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I hit all the sevens? Like, that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) So then there was another exercise. She said, I need you to name five shiny things. Okay. Shiny. Shiny. What's shiny? What's shiny? A diamond is shiny. An emerald is shiny. A ruby is shiny. A sapphire is shiny. And an onyx is shiny. I couldn't change categories. Once I picked a category, my brain couldn't shift to a different category. And the reason why I couldn't hit all those sevens is because I couldn't focus long enough. I would focus for 30 seconds and then I'd take a brain break. And I come back to it. Mm-hmm. Well, why is that happening? It shouldn't be that way. Like, I should be fine. I survived this. I'm up. I'm walking. I'm talking. I, I mean, I went through a whole lot to do that. But the outside of me looks fine. So what's wrong with the inside? Yeah. So, you know, you keep going to cognitive therapy and you do the exercises that they tell you to do to try to start to see some positive impact. impact. Mm-hmm. And there were some times that I would see some big steps. Oh, wow, that works again. Um, so I attempted to go back to work. It's like, let me go back to work. And I was a coordinator at that time. So I was responsible for um, helping with a multi-million dollar budget across four departments. I helped take care of any complaints that came into the CEO or the COOs or, you know, the big wigs, whatever. Mm-hmm. I helped to coordinate projects. Um, I did executive reports, a bunch of different things, lots and lots of multitasking. Mm -hmm. So when I went back to work, I can't focus. (laughs) I can't focus. I can't multitask. I'm like, I'm trying, I'm trying. Well, maybe I can smile my way through this. Maybe it'll be okay. I'll just (laughs) keep the smile on my face and keep pushing. It didn't work. Um, so I went for my annual review at work and they told me that they needed me to step it up. They needed me to do more. They needed me to be my superior shadow for any and every project that was there. And, you know, you got to you got to get in here and do more. But you're doing good now. We're going to go ahead and, and give you that annual raise. But, um, yeah, we need to see you got to step it up this next year. Um, okay. I don't know how I'm going to do that. So I called my doctor and I explained the situation. And I said, look, I, if I'm going to have any chance of being me again at, at any percentage level that I'm going to be comfortable with, I need to step away from work and focus on 
this cognitive therapy and just really delve into it. So we did that. I came out on disability from my job and I took a year and I focused on cognitive therapy. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get better. I'm going to see more results. I'm going to, I'm going to fix this. That was another illusion. I'm going to fix this. So I went to cognitive therapy and it started to just become redundant. I wasn't seeing a whole lot of progression. Um, the exercises were the same. So I stopped. I stopped going to cognitive therapy. I didn't have anything to do with my time. What am I going to do with my time? You know, I mean, I love my friends. I love hanging out with them, but you can only do that so much. And mm -hmm. I don't have a whole lot of energy to go out and, you know, play or do things with my son anymore. And my thoughts are constantly, why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to me? This isn't fair. Why did this happen? Mm -hmm. So I ended up in my bed with massive depression for about a year, year and a half. I would get up in the morning and I would take my son to school and then I would come back home and lay down in the bed until it was time to pick him up. I would pick him up, bring him home, make him a snack, get his homework done. He'd go outside and play. I'd lay down again and then wake up just to make dinner. Um, it was a bad place to be in. It was a really bad, bad, dark place to be. And, you know, one day I just... <sighs> I didn't want to live like that anymore. I, what am I doing with my life? And again, it's affecting my family. My son is like, my mom doesn't want to do anything with me anymore. And my husband's like, what the hell's wrong with you? So none of us knew how to deal with it or where to go to deal with it. Um, I was told I should go to therapy because I was so angry. But it would just make me more angry when people would say, you're so angry. Like, I don't have the right to be mad about what happened to me. Like, I think I do because it took so many months for the doctors to listen and finally find something and, and figure out what was wrong with me. And then when they did figure out what was wrong with me, they wanted me to wait even longer to get, to get treated, to be better. And then when they did treat me, they didn't keep me like they were supposed to. And then this happened. And then I think human nature wants to look for somebody to blame when things happen. There is nobody to blame when a trauma hits your life. There, there isn't. It, with, there just isn't. There isn't anybody to blame. There isn't this magic finger you can point at somebody and say, you did this to me. You just got the luck of the draw. Everybody gets dealt a deck of cards to deal with throughout their entire lives. Some are going to have all aces and some are going to have all jokers. But you get to decide how you're going to deal with what you're handed. And again, it's okay to say, you know what? I think today I'm going to have a joker day and I'm just going to lay out, mm -hmm. but get up tomorrow and put your ace face on and go out there and do what you got to do to be a good person because you're here for a reason. Mm -hmm. You may never, ever, ever, ever know what that purpose is, but you weren't taken because there's more for you to do here. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, so yeah, cognitive therapy for a year. I attempted to go back to work part-time in the medical field. I was successful for, with that for three years. Mm -hmm. um, and then it just got to be too much. I, the headaches were coming back more frequently. The medications that they were putting me on to manage the headaches were had side effects of massive exhaustion, like couldn't even get up when the alarm clock would go off. 
because they would put me on beta blockers, which is a blood pressure medication. Mm -hmm. And my blood pressure is low anyway. So when I was on those, I was a walking zombie because it would just drop it even more. Mm -hmm. um, so I ended up coming out of work again, disability. And I've been that way ever since. I haven't gone back to work. Honestly, one day I just decided I'm tired of living like this. Mm -hmm. Like this why question that is haunting me. Why did this happen to me? And what am I supposed to do with my life? And, mm -hmm. you know, why didn't you just take me when you had the chance? Why am I still here? Um, it, it's a really bad question. It really is because there's no answer to it. Mm -hmm. You know, I was able to satisfy my why with you'll love this. Well, you went through this massive surgery and you woke up and all you were concerned about is where's your cell phone and your coffee. You didn't take a minute and say, thank you. You didn't take a minute and take a deep breath and say, I'm glad I'm still here. So for me, it satisfied my why, you know, God had to slap me twice to get me to see, you know, Hey, this is happening for a reason and you're going to be humbled by this one way or the other. So <laughs> That was, that's how I satisfied my, why did this happen? Mm -hmm. um, is there a whole lot of truth in that for somebody else hearing that? Maybe not, but for me, it got me out of bed. Yeah. So I took a college class. I took a college math class and I <laughs> don't like math at all, but I knew whatever I did, I had to challenge myself. This couldn't be easy. Yeah. And it made me have to get out of bed and it made me have to socially interact with people again. And it, it gave me a purpose. It made me feel important. It, it allowed me to remember that I like to smile and that I like to meet new people and that I like to be silly and that I like to learn new things. Yeah. So I went to this math class and it was fun for math anyway. I passed it with a B. Woohoo. Um, <laughs> that was great. And then, uh, I said, well, if I can do math, I can go back to work. And that's what led me to the three years in part-time. Yeah. The issue with that again was the, the frequent headaches and the medication and the being able to get along well with my coworkers. Which was interesting to me because I had always been the social butterfly. I had always been the one that coordinated the parties. If your son had a birthday, I knew he had a birthday. If your grandmother had a birthday, I knew she had a birthday. So it was very different. The personality differences are, are there. They're, it's true. They happen. Yeah. Um, but you figure out again how to roll with that. So I came out of work, disability again, um, and I was probably will never go back to work. I would like to hope that I will be able to one day, but I don't know if the pressures on my brain will allow me to, but then there's that person inside of me, that ambitious little person that's like, try it, try it, try it, try it. So yeah. Yeah. we'll see where that goes. Um, I guess, you know, again, Joyce, you and I have talked about, there's several layers to, to my story. Um, and it's not done yet. Sorry, guys. I know it's long, but there's <laughs> even more to this. So from a medical point of view, every year I have to go and get my brain scanned. Mm -hmm. I get what's called a CTA, which is a um, CT scan with dye. Mm -hmm. And six years ago, they found another brain aneurysm that was very, very small. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to watch it. So we were watching it every year and it hadn't really done anything or grown any larger. Mm -hmm. 
until the scan in 2018 or excuse me, 2000, yeah, 2018, November, 2018. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to Duke, I got my scan and I waited for my copies because now I wait for my own copies. Anytime I get anything scanned, I'll just wait. I'll just wait. Just, I'll just wait. <laughs> I learned my <laughs> lessons. So the ladies were like, it's going to take a while. There's a lot of pictures. You know, why don't you go get some lunch and come back? And I was like, oh, I got my book. I'm going to read my book. I'll be fine. I'll just wait. Are you really sure you want to wait? I'll just wait. Are you trying to tell me you found something? Is there something in there? There's something in there, isn't there? Well, you know, I can't tell you even if there is. Uh huh. I'll wait. So I get my, my discs and there's like six of them and I come home and I put them in my computer and I start playing hunt the aneurysm because I know they've seen something. I don't know what it is, but they've seen something and I don't know how to read these brain scans or whatever. (laughs) So, um, well, let me preference this. Since I had my first brain surgery, I have, um, I have, uh, separated from my husband. So uh, my boyfriend calls me that day when I have my scan and he says, what are you doing? And I said, I'm playing hide and seek the aneurysm. And he goes, what? (laughs) (laughs) I'm playing hide and seek with the aneurysm, trying to find it on my scans. And I think that I found something, but I'm not 100% sure. So that night I'm on the phone with my girlfriend from high school and we're just, you know, jaw jacking and whatever. And I get this email from my neurologist and she says, you have to go see a neurosurgeon. Mm. my son was home when that happened and mind you you know he's 20 now but just that email just reading you have to go see the neurosurgeon it was it it started a whole slew of emotions that I thought I had dealt with that I thought I had accepted that I thought I had been living with exactly the way I was supposed to be. Um, but come to find out I, I, I hadn't accepted everything. And mm-hmm. yeah, so that's a fun story, but I think we want to do that in part two. Is that right, Miss Joyce? Yeah, I think the story is long and, and, and layered and very interesting, but um, yeah. Okay. Well, that's fine. I'm happy to stop here. And then start with with two because I still had problems with the doctors being proactive and being aggressive with my treatment and listening and and it was the same set of doctors it was the same set of surgical team um, and I think there was some real fear uh, with that surgeon and myself on both sides of the equation. Like, do I really want to touch her brain again? And do I really want him to touch my brain again? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, there's, yeah, there's some very interesting layers in that. And I hope that your viewers will continue to watch. I know it's long and I'm never going to be good at Ted talk type of things. So, (laughs) um, I guess I love the way you tell your stories. And I will say that, um, it's all the while that you've been talking, I, you're such a great communicator and you're so stubborn and forceful. <laughs> you're a good self-advocate and you remind me some ways of myself in that when I went through breast cancer and how I fought, I had to fight, I had to fight to get what I needed done. And I'm like, why do I have to fight? 
And what do people do who aren't, who don't have my personality, which is, you know, a little bit of a rebel, a little bit of a fighter anyway, right? Like, it's just mind blowing to me to, to hear, if, well, thank God you're like you are. Thank God that you, you know, that you, you stuck with it and then you sprinkled in the humor and all those kinds of things to help, you know, get, get it done. It's, it's just phenomenal. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, it, it took a lot for me. You know, you said I'm stubborn and demanding and forceful and all of those things. And those attributes can be um, intimidating to others at times, depending on the position that you're in. At well, that those time. are adjectives, though, that you, that you know, I, I use stubborn because you just, I guess wouldn't take no for an answer, you know? Right. And I was just going to say those attributes are so important to have when you have to advocate for yourself because nobody can tell you, go sit over there and wait. Yeah. No, I'm not. This is something that can be terminal. This is something that can kill me. And you know, as much as I understand that you see this every single day and death is something you deal with, it's not something I deal with or wish to experience on a premature level. So yeah. how can we work together to make sure that doesn't happen? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, well, it, I love it. You have such powerful leadership qualities and um, things that we use negative. I guess the point I was trying to make is we tend to use these negative words when, in fact, it's everything that you'd want to be. <laughs> Yeah, in a situation like that, I would agree. In any situation, in any situation in life, you're just a born leader and a born communicator and advocate. You just, you know, I wouldn't change a thing. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's really kind. I appreciate that. Will you come back on to the show and tell, um, tell more of your story? Yes, I will, because there is a phenomenal happy ending to this new... Um, development that you guys just heard about on my um, towards the end of this. So please, please, please come back because again, that why question will follow you forever. It will follow you forever. And I told you my answer to my why that I was able to satisfy myself with many years ago. But now I think I have a new answer because of what I just recently went through um, with this new aneurysm and how I was able to have a completely different experience and learn to appreciate, okay, it can go, it can go negatively, but man, it can also go great. Yeah. Well, we'll wrap it up here and, um, and get you back on to tell us more because I love happy endings. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Thank you, Joyce. We will see you soon. Thank you, Carrie. Hey, everyone. Joyce Strong back again just to say thank you for tuning into the podcast. I want to remind you that you can visit me at TotalWellCoach.com, which links to all my social media and my offerings, my Inner Circle membership, which is a an entry-level way to get involved, get coaching, and get all my classes for one low monthly fee. And if you want more, work with me one-on-one with intensive nutrition and lifestyle so that you can opt out of chronic disease, then get in touch with me and we'll talk about how that happens. We spend a lot of time together 
I want you to join the one-on-one coaching if you're really committed to making a lifestyle change and you want a guide and a support and a friend to walk with you in this journey. You're going to do the work. I'm going to support you. Um, You already have what you need inside you to make these changes. So do reach out to me at TotalWellCoach.com. I love it when you subscribe and share and comment on all my um, YouTube and on Apple Podcasts and all those places because it elevates my frequency and it gets more people to hear and see what I do. So please, please, please. I really, it means the world to me if you would help support me that way because you're helping support my entire network. I'm here for you if you need me. So thanks again for tuning into the podcast and reach out. Love to hear you. Love to get your comments. Love to get your DMs. Love to get your emails. Any way I can help, let me know. That's what I'm here to do. I love to serve. So thanks again. 